0: Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Let me pray for us and I want to begin. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the power it is in our lives. or The power of salvation, as the Bible tells us. So, Father, I pray for the next little while we would just take seriously what we're called to do as we continue in a, in a spirit of worship, as we open up the truth of your word, Father, the, the living document you've given us to speak truth into our lives. Your word, Lord. I pray we would study it. I pray we would understand it. I pray we would apply it to our lives. And I pray, Father, we would be transformed more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7. We are continuing our study this morning, the book of Genesis, the sermon series we've called In the Beginning. And I want to just catch you up because we've kind of of skipped a few weeks here or there a few weeks ago because of graduation last week, because of VBS. I want to catch us all up to speed as to where we are in our study. The Lord has looked down upon the earth that He created perfectly, and because of the sin of the world, the destruction of the world, God has decided now He's going to wipe clean everything off the face of the earth. He's going to destroy the world with a flood. And so he's called a righteous man, Noah, to build this big boat. And he's given Noah the dimensions. He's told him how long it ought to be, at least 450 feet. We said it depends on on how you measure a cubit. But at least 450 feet long. And students, if you've been to Callaway Stadium, we use the example of kind of past the end zone, the fences at the end of Callaway Stadium, beyond the end zone. The ark would go up almost to those fences. It would take up about half the football field. It would be as tall as the press box, roughly. And we talked about just the sheer volume of that boat and being able to hold all the animals that God sent to Noah. Remember, two of every kind of animal so they could continue to create after the flood seven pair of clean animals so they could be sacrificed and we talked about taking kinds of animals remember he didn't bring he didn't bring every breed of dog he brought one kind of dog that had the dna possible so that all the other breeds could come from that and so as you study the size of the boat and the animals that he brought it's very clear that there was enough space for these animals and so the lord now has put noah in the boat he's put his family in the boat He's put the animals in the boat and the Bible tells us that God now has shut the door and the rains have started to fall. Now I want you just for a few minutes to hold your place in Genesis chapter 7. We're going to go from one end of the Bible almost to the other. And I want you to flip all the way to 2 Peter. It's the very end of the Bible. If you're not sure where 2 Peter is, find the book of Revelation and go back just a few books. 2 Peter, you say, why are we going all the way to 2 Peter? It's going to tie into the flood. It's something I want you to understand. It's a passage of Scripture that Peter's going to give us that's going to shed some light, not only on the flood, but this is interesting, it's going to shed some light on the world that we live in today. It's very current. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to begin reading in verse 3. Now, Peter is writing this book to combat false teachers. Here's what you need to understand. There were people in this time, in Peter's time, all the way through history, they're going to teach falsely about the Word of God. We all know that. But I want you to listen to Peter's words. In 2 Peter, beginning in verse chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. Above all, he says... You must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. It sounds like today, doesn't it, right? People are going to come and scoff, they're going to laugh and make fun, and they're going to chase their own evil desires. And they will say, right, here's verse 4. Where is this coming, he promised, right? So they're saying, look, you said that Christ is going to come back. You said there's going to be a second coming to Jesus. Where is this coming that was promised, right? Now here we're going to continue the quote from the scoffers. Ever since our ancestors died... Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. That's an awfully important little statement. We'll come back in a second. Verse 5. But they, these are the scoffers, deliberately, right? There's this intent. They deliberately forget that long ago by God's words, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed water and by water, right? So they forget, these scoffers, they deliberately forget that all these years ago the Lord created the earth and he formed it. Water out of water. Remember the water over the deep? Now verse 6. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged or flooded and destroyed. I think that's interesting. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now let's stop there for a second. Let's just kind of rewind and recap what Peter's saying here. Peter's saying in the last days, there are going to be scoffers. People are going to come, they're going to make fun of, they're going to laugh, they're going to look at you and they're going to say, you are foolish for believing that Christ is ever going to come back. You're foolish for believing the Lord created the heavens and you're foolish for believing that there was a flood that destroyed the earth, right? You're silly. Now, I don't want you to raise your hand, but has anybody ever heard that in our current society today? Interesting how Peter, writing this 2,000 years ago, looked ahead. And even in our generation, it's still true, isn't it? That's the really cool thing to me about the Bible. Even though it was written 2,000 years ago, it's still true today. So Peter says there's these people who are going to come. They're going to laugh. They're going to ridicule. They're going to make fun. But then he makes, this, I think, a fascinating statement at the end of verse 4. I want to read it for you again and just unpack it for a second. They will say, these are the scoffers, Where's the coming that was promised? And then they make this statement. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Now Peter says, what what we're saying here is that everything is always as it has been. Nothing has ever changed the earth. That's the argument he's making here. Now we have a word for that today, believe it or not, in scientific community. They call it uniformitarianism. That's a long word. Uniformitarianism. Now, if you're taking notes, make sure you spell it correctly so you can Google it later after church and study it. But you ought to look it up. I'm going to define it for you. It's a real word. Here's what it means. It's the assumption, and this is how scientists make decisions today. It's the assumption that the same natural laws and processes that operate in the universe now have always operated in the universe in the past and apply everywhere in the universe. In other words, all the rules that we have, all the laws that we have, they're not only true now, but they've been true since the beginning. In other words, scientists would say there's never been anything that's really changed. Paul says you need to be aware of the people that are going to scoff at you and laugh at you. Because they're going to say in the end times... That not only was Christ not ever here and never going to return, but this idea of the flood is silly because of uniformitarianism. Nothing really ever changes. There's never been a flood. There's never been this massive event with all this water that came and covered the surface of the earth. You don't need to believe that. You need to set that aside. In fact, these scoffers would say that's silly. You're ignorant for believing that. It's interesting because Peter kind of looks ahead in the future and he says there are people that are going to deliberately forget everything that the Lord has done. I think we see that in our world today. So I want you to understand, even as we're reading in the book of Genesis, that there are people not only in Noah's time, but history since, today and all through the future. They're going to laugh at this. They're going to make fun of it. They're going to ridicule you for believing it, but I believe with all my heart that what we have in Genesis and chapter 7 and all that we've studied is the absolute truth of the Word of God. And I think it will stand up to any scrutiny you put upon it. And I think as we read it and as we understand it and as we study it, the Lord will speak clearly to our hearts about our walk and our faith with Him. So now let's flip back. We've moved to Second Peter. We're going to go back to Genesis 7. I just wanted to point out to you this truth. I just think it's fascinating and interesting. And by the way, the idea of things continuing as they have always continued, I think that's an interesting picture and a reminder as these scientists believe that nothing has ever changed of how the flood actually changed the landscape. We talked a little bit about that a few weeks ago. I'll mention it again today in passing. But I want to look this morning at Genesis chapter 7. We're going to begin at verse 17. So if you have your Bibles there, you can read along. We have it on the screen as well. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, so we're going to kind of keep moving through this. But Genesis chapter 7, beginning in verse 17. Noah's in the boat. His family's in the boat. The animals are in the boat. The waters have begun to fall. And remember, we looked a couple weeks ago, the Bible says that the floods of the deep are open. And we looked at the scientific study that says they believe that 400 miles below the surface of the of the crust of the earth are oceans. You remember that study we looked at? stores of water. They believe it three times the amount of our current oceans. And so when those things burst forth and that water came up out of the ground, the flood comes. And now verse 17 of Genesis 7. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the how mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. And again, there's this overwhelming evidence in Genesis 7. We've already seen it in 6. We'll see it again in 8. There's this overwhelming evidence that this was a global flood. It wasn't a localized event. Every time we read about it in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, it speaks about the whole earth, all people... All mountains covered. Now verse 21. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Verse 23. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left... And those with him in the ark, the waters flooded the earth for hundred and fifty days. Now here's truth number one. It's a kind of a stark thing to say and it's very difficult sometimes for us to swallow. But I think it's truth of the word of God. Number one we find in Genesis 7 is that God destroyed all life. Now we don't like to talk about that a lot, do we? Because in our world we want to focus on the love of God and on his mercy and his grace. And all those things are true. And we should never minimize those things. He sent Christ to this earth because of his love for us. But I think we also need to understand in our study, there comes a time when the Lord kind of has enough. And he gives, and he gives, and he's gracious, and he's gracious, and he forgives, and he looks past, and he looks beyond, and there comes a point, as we see in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, where he says, I've had enough, I'm going to flood the earth, I'm going to destroy all life. Now it's interesting because this study in the book of Genesis is not the only account of the flood we find in the world. Now let me just say this to you. I want you to understand where I'm coming from. This is absolute truth. We need to hold to this as our authority, above all other authorities. But I think it's interesting when you start studying the flood outside of the Word of God, you find that there are actually approximately 270 other flood stories found throughout the world. Did you know that? Noah is not the only one in the book of Genesis. In fact, if you were to do the research, you would find there are approximately 270 other flood stories found in other nations, other tribes, really found all over the world. I made just kind of a short list. You can find flood stories from New Zealand. It's interesting... Uh, those the scoffers will say these are just all localized floods. This thing's interesting. There are 270 localized floods that tell the same story. New Guinea, Brazil, Cuba, Mexico, Lithuania, China, Egypt, North America, really all over the world you find all these flood traditions. Now, I want to give you just some very simple truths about these other flood traditions. I'm, I'm doing this because I think it's interesting. It really bolsters what we read in Genesis 7, 8, 9. Here are some facts about these other flood stories. Most of these narratives... ...say that in the middle of the flood there was one family that was favored by God and was spared. Most of these stories say that survival was by some boat that they built. Most of the stories say the flood came because of man's wickedness. Most of the stories say that animals were also saved. Most of them use some form of Noah's name. You should research it. It's very interesting. There's usually an N and a U or an O somewhere in the name beginning and in end. It's a Noah type of a word... Many of them speak about the birds being sent out. Many of them speak about a rainbow. Many of them say that eight people were saved. You say, how in the world could all of these cultures and all these nations and all these tribes from all over the world write similar stories when, by the way, all these people, just in case you didn't know, didn't get in a room together and write this at the same time? You're aware of that, right? They wrote them at separate times, separate locations, most of them having no idea that other people in some other part of the world were writing the same story. You say, how could that ever happen? It could only happen if Noah actually survived on the boat. He came off the ark. His family began to grow and spread all around the world. And as those people spread, they took with them oral tradition, which is exactly what we'd expect in this time period. They told the story of Noah and the ark. And after generations, after generations, hundreds and hundreds of years, the story changed a little bit and got confused. But we still have within the elements of the story the same truth, that there was a worldwide global flood brought on because of the sinfulness of the people. And the Lord's righteousness saved Noah and his family. You say, great, okay, so I get that. So there's a lot of accounts of the story of the flood. There's a lot of instances other than Scripture that talk about the flood. But what other kind of research is there that proves or shows that the flood was accurate? Well, I believe one of the greatest proofs of the flood is, in fact, the fossil record. Now, I want to make a statement to you. and Some of you are going to be confused, and you're going to have to let me unpack this for the next few minutes. But I believe fossils are a result of the flood. You say, now, wait a minute now. I've never been, I've never been taught that before. You're... You're stepping out a little bit. You're confusing me. I want you to think through some things. And let me tell you what I've done just to kind of help you better understand this. I've kind of done some research outside of the Christian world, right? Because it's kind of easy to stack the deck. It's easy to read quotes and stories from people that believe the flood is real. So I'm going to read some quotes from people that don't necessarily believe there's a worldwide flood. I want you to understand a couple of things about fossils that I think are very important. The first thing I want you to understand is this. In order for a fossil, now just think through with me. In order for a fossil to be formed, we need a rapid burial of this organism, okay? Now think with this just for a second. Think with me just for a second. When an animal dies in our world today, you've seen it on the side of the road. If you're a hunter, maybe you've experienced it. When an animal dies and just kind of lays on the ground where it died, if you were to come back a month or two months or three months later, what would you find in that same spot? Not much, Right? You know how it works. I'm not going to get into the graphic details, but there are other organisms that would be happy to kind of eat that for lunch. And So you don't find all these dead animal bones fully preserved laying all over the ground. Why? Because there are plenty of other things that come and eat it for lunch. So in order for a fossil to be preserved, now we're just thinking logically through this, in order for a fossil to be preserved, we need a rapid burial, right? We need something once that thing dies to bury it in a hurry. If you don't bury in a hurry, something else is going to eat it, right? So we got rapid burial. I want to read for you from Wikipedia.com. Again, I'm not stacking the deck, okay? Wikipedia is by no means a Christian organization. I want you to listen to what they say. (laughs) Dead organisms in nature are usually quickly removed by scavengers, bacteria, rotting, and erosion. Right? Just what we just said. But... Sedimentation. Now, that's where sediments kind of get on top of it, right? Layers of dirt or rock. Sedimentation can contribute to the exceptional circumstances where these natural processes are unable to work, causing fossilization. Right. So we, we, we understand we need this animal to die, and we need dirt and rock and something to come on top of it in a hurry. Now, here's the next interesting thing about fossils. Fossils, almost all of them when you do the study, are found in sedimentary rock. Now here's another quote from Wikipedia, right? Among the three major types of rock, fossils are most commonly found in sedimentary rock. You say, okay, I get that, right? We need a rapid burial. We need something to cover these things up in a hurry. Sedimentary rock does that because it's made of a lot of different sediments, rocks and sand and grain. But here's the question. What does that have to do with a flood? Well, here's where we kind of begin to make the connection. Sedimentary rock is formed by what? Anybody want to guess? Water. A huh. little light bulb goes off for a second, right? you begin beginning to connect some dots. Here's what Wikipedia says. Fossils are formed in a number of different ways. But most are formed when a plant or animal dies in a watery environment and is buried in mud and silt. Right. So we need a rapid burial. Or two things we need for a fossil to form. We need a rapid burial, we need to be covered very quickly, and we need water to do that, right? You say, why do we need water? Well, if the animal dies, you've got to have something else to cover it. What else is going to cover it besides water? You could have the wind blow and blow dirt on top of it. That's possible, but highly unlikely. You know it just doesn't happen like that. There are some very strange possibilities that could occur for this thing to get covered up in dirt. But the way we see time and time again is a rapid burial because of water. Water. And here's another interesting little idea. One of the things you find with these animals when they find these fossils, especially dinosaurs, I think is fascinating, they find it in strange poses. Now, here's what I mean. You think about something that dies and just kind of lays on the ground. These animals are contorted in strange different positions. Their heads are strange. Their arms are going different directions. Their tails are going different directions. I want to read from you from berkeley.edu. Now, this is their, this is their website on evolution. You can go read it yourself. I'll give you all the information if you want to go read it yourself. From berkeley.edu, talking about this pose that they find these animals in. Now stay with me, stay with me. Okay, we're walking slowly, th- maybe I should slow down a little bit. I get, when I get excited, man, I start going fast. And Amy tells me, you've got to talk slower. i got a lot to say, though, and I don't have a lot of time to do it. So let me just slow down for a second. berkeley.edu, okay? Here's a quote from their website. The particular pose, that's the pose we're talking about, of many fossilized dinosaurs with a mouth wide open, Head thrown back, tail in strange position, likely resulted from the agonized death throes typical of brain damage and asphyxiation. That means they can't breathe, right? So something's causing these animals not to breathe. According to two paleontologists, this posture has puzzled them for ages. In other words, paleontologists have asked the question, why are we finding these animals in these strange contorted shapes with their heads going strange and why is that happening dinosaur and bird excuse me i will skipped down dinosaurs and their relatives I'm still quoting here from berkeley.edu ranging from the flying pterosaurus to the tyrannosaurus rex as well as many early mammals have found, been found exhibiting this posture the explanation usually given by paleontologists is that the dinosaur died in water see that? And the currents drifted the bones into that position. Wikipedia again says dinosaur and bird fossils are frequently found in a characteristic posture consisting of the head thrown back, the tail extended, the mouth wide open. The cause of this posture, sometimes called the death pose, has been a matter of scientific debate. But one of the theories is that water currents randomly arrange the remains in that position. Isn't that interesting? So here's what, here's what we're getting now. We're understanding fossils a little bit more. We're finding we need a quick burial. And in order to get that quick burial, we need a lot of water all at the same time. Sound familiar? Does it sound like anything you've heard of before? Right? Now here's what the evolutionary scientists would say. The standard evolutionary view is that from time to time, over the eons, a calm and placid sea. I just like the... Whew, just sounds beautiful, right? Calm, placid, covered, what is now the continents. Over the millions of years of living and dying, coming and going, the fossils were preserved as sediments, slowly connect, collected on the ocean bottom. So, what they say we should find is just remains of these animals that, over the millions of years, died, floated to the bottom of the ocean, were covered up by silt, by a sediment, and when those oceans, they say, went away, were left with the dirt and the dinosaur beard and the dust. Now, here's the problem with that. If that were the case, we should find individual animals buried in random places. And we do find that. That certainly is the case. But what this can account for is something very interesting. And you can Google this if you're interested more in this. Massive fossil graveyards. You say, what, what's, a, what's a massive fossil graveyard? Here's what a mass, massive fossil graveyard is. It's a location where they find sometimes millions of different organisms all in the same place, all buried at the same time. Now, they're all over the world. The Karoo in South Africa is one of the largest. You can find them in the Gobi Desert. You can find them in Western Canada. And one of the most extensive is the Ashley Fossil Beds in South Carolina. I didn't even know that existed. And I had to do a lot of interesting research. In fact, it hadn't been written about since the early 1900s. I think that's an interesting little clue. Local paleontologists, excuse me, modern paleontologists are not writing a lot about it. I think you're going to see why when I read the quote. This is from a book written about it. The Ashley Fossil Beds in South Carolina, near the Charleston area, is an enormous phosphate graveyard that contained mixed remains. Now, here's what's in this fossil graveyard. Man... Along with land and sea animals, dinosaurs, whales, sharks, rhinos, horses, mastodons, mammoth, porpoise, elephant, deer, pigs, dogs, sheep. On and on the list goes. There's this graveyard where you find all of these animals. You find dinosaurs, you find humans, you find whales, you find land animals. All buried in the same place. It's an extensive, massive, fossil graveyard. You say something killed these animals in a hurry, buried them in water, and then left them for a clue to us. find all these thousands of years later. I believe it was the flood. Now there are lots of other theories out there. There are a lot of people that would argue with that, but I think what we see in science and what we see especially here in Scripture is as God has looked down upon the face of the earth... He's seen the sin, he's seen the destruction, he's destroyed the earth, and he's left behind now for us millions of these fossils that occurred during the flood. Now let's continue. Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. Write all that stuff down. If you want to talk to me about it, I'm happy to share with you more. I'll give you all the web links, all the book names so you can read it yourself. Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. We need to continue to move this morning. But, and I think that's an important word at the beginning of chapter 8. If you're reading in the NIV, that's how it begins. God has caused all this destruction because of the sinfulness of the world. He's destroyed, he's changed, he's removed. But in the midst of all this, God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Here's truth number two. God was faithful. I think that's a beautiful picture of who God is through Scripture. I think it's a picture of who God is in Genesis during the case of the flood. I think we see it over and over, not only in the Bible, but in our lives. It's a picture that in the midst of destruction, in the midst of sinfulness, in the midst of great death, God is faithful. Now let me remind you of a verse we read several weeks ago. You don't have to look it up if you want, but Genesis chapter 6 verse 18. Let me just remind you of what it says. When the Lord first went to Noah, he says to Noah in Genesis 6 18, I will establish my covenant with you, speaking to Noah. I will establish my covenant with you. You will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. God says, Noah, if you'll trust me, if you'll listen to me, if you'll follow me, I'll make this covenant with you. And I, even Noah, if you're not, I will be faithful. Now, it's interesting because this is the first covenant we see in Scripture, but it's not the last. In fact, one writer said this, accounts of covenants between God and His people can be found approximately 277 times in the Bible. In fact, what we see over and over and over again is this idea that the Lord is going to make a covenant with His people. And the covenant usually looks something like this. We find an example in Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant... I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. Here's what he says. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Isn't that a beautiful picture of who the Lord is? We see his faithfulness with Noah. We see his faithfulness with Abraham. We see his faithfulness with David. We see over and over and over in Scripture that the Lord is faithful. Now here's the jump I want to make just for a second to your life. So we've seen these covenants of the Old Testament. We see that the Lord is faithful. We see this picture of his faithfulness with Noah and his family and the ark and the flood. I think there's this interesting connection between the picture of the faithfulness of the Lord with Noah and salvation. See, I believe the Lord would still say to you something very similar he says to Noah. In the midst of the destruction, in the midst of the sinfulness... In the midst of the world that is separated from the things of the Lord, if you will trust the Lord, if you will follow Him, He will be your God and you will be His people. I think it's a picture of the righteousness offered to us through Christ Jesus. Romans 1.17 says this, From the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that's by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, God says to you, if you will demonstrate faith and trust in me, I will save you. I will be faithful even when you're not. Isn't that a great truth? Aren't you thankful that the Lord is faithful even when we're not? Now let's continue. I need to finish up. Genesis chapter 8, verse 2. So Noah's in the boat. The waters have come. God's destroyed everything. He's been faithful to Noah. He saved them. Now verse 2, now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of heaven had been closed and the rain stopped falling from the sky. Right. So the the additional water to the earth is now over. We're not adding any new water. Now verse 3, the water begins to recede steadily from the earth. And at the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. I believe the Lord opened up the, 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 the big caves of below, like we talked about several weeks ago, and the water poured back in. And just imagine, by the way, and again, I talked about this a few weeks ago. You can listen to the podcast if you want to hear more. But imagine all of that water rushing off the earth, the destruction it would have caused. Imagine how it would have changed the landscape. So the water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down, verse 4. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, The ark came to rest on the mountains of Arad. By the way, very specific date right here. We're not talking about just some story that was made up. We're talking about a time frame, a historical narrative of when this actually happened. Verse 5. The waters continued to recede until the tenth month. And on the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After forty days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark, and he sent out a raven. And it kept flying back and forth until the waters had dried up. Remember, it needs to find a place to land, so that's kind of a test for Noah. Verse 8, Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could, not, could find nowhere to perch because there was water all over the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and he took the dove and he brought it back to himself in the ark. Verse 10, He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. Right, It found dry land. It found a place to live. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Here's truth number three, right? We've seen the Lord destroy. We've seen the Lord be faithful. And now truth number three, we see a new beginning. Noah now is going to walk out into an earth that was totally and completely changed, different than the one he left God has looked down upon the earth and decided to destroy it, wash it clean of the sinfulness and all the things that remain behind. And he's given now to Noah this beautiful picture of a new beginning. Everything is changed. Everything is new. I just envision this beautiful picture of the the mountain of Mount Ararat and the the boat sitting on the top of the mountain and Noah and his family come out and the, the animals walking out into the new kingdom the Lord has provided for him. We see this beautiful picture of even in the midst of the destruction, the faithfulness of the Lord. It's a new hope. It's a new beginning. And I want to kind of finish up just with this idea. I just want to kind of apply this to our lives just very quickly. Just stay with me. i got a few more minutes here. I think far too many of us need a new beginning, don't we? I think some of you need a new start. I think you came this morning with issues in your life. Maybe there's a problem at work. Maybe your marriage is collapsing. Maybe there's unfaithfulness somewhere. Maybe you're having problems with your children. The list goes on and on. But some of us came this morning with with a lot to bear. And you've come this morning looking for some new hope, for a new beginning. Maybe you've been looking in a lot of different places. Maybe you've been talking to friends. Maybe you've been reading books. Maybe you've been trying to kind of suppress everything or sweep it under the rug. And I think some of us have come this morning because we need something fresh and something new in our lives. And I just want to speak truth to your your heart just for a second here. You can search for hope all over the world, and you can spend a lifetime doing it. But I promise you, just in my personal experience and the people that I've talked to over the years, I don't think you can find true hope anywhere but in Christ. And so if you've been looking for it, And you've come this morning maybe because you need a fresh beginning and you need a new hope and you need a new chapter in your life. I want to tell you, you can find it in Christ. You can find it in His love. You can find it in His mercy. You can find it in His grace. And the most beautiful part about salvation in Jesus Christ is that He offers it freely to you. Just like He did Noah. If you'll just trust me, if you'll just listen to me, I will be faithful to you. In the midst of all the problems that you face, there's salvation found only in Christ. I want to pray for us this morning. And as I pray, I want you to be challenged and encouraged by what the Lord has said to you and how the Lord is speaking to you. So, Father, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the truth of Scripture, Lord. It's a very difficult picture for us to understand sometimes. The idea of destruction and the sinfulness of the world, Father, reminds us of your power and your majesty and your justice. But, Lord, the hope that you've given to Noah reminds us of your grace and your mercy and your love. It's the same hope you offered to David. It's the same hope you offered to Abraham. It's the same hope you offered to Isaac and to Jacob and to all the prophets of the Old Testament, all the people of the New Testament, Father. It's the same hope you offered to us today so, Lord, if there's somebody here this morning that needs a new beginning, that needs a fresh start, that, that needs to find some hope somewhere, I pray, Father, they'd find it in you. Not in the books or the things of the world, Lord, but they would just look to the truth of your word, to the truth of Scripture, to the truth of Christ, and they would place their full trust and their full hope in you. And, Lord, when they do that, you give them a fresh start, a new beginning, a life of excitement lived and joy found only in you. Lord, we love you and we serve you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to give you a couple of minutes to respond at the altar. If you want to pray, you can do that. If you want to repent of your sins and turn to Christ for a new hope, you can do that. If you want to join the church, this is your time. You respond. You come as we sing together. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you.